Welcome to the Geriatric Journal Club, featuring practical discussions on the front line of PALTC issues that you wrestle with every day. References for this podcast and links to previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. Have you joined EMDA's new initiative called Drive to Deprescribe, Optimizing Medication Use in PALTC? Join us on June 17th to learn how to design your Drive to Deprescribe intervention. You can access the kickoff meeting call playback, register for the June 17th meeting, and learn more at paltc.org slash drive, the number two, deprescribe. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another session of the Florida Medical Directors Association Journal Club. The, today's date is um, June 9th. I can't believe it's June 9th already. <laughs> and we are going to talk today about understanding COVID-19 skin manifestations. You know, I know that we are really, you know, we're, we're in a, a much better state than we were even a month ago with COVID and looking at the, the possibility of the other side of this pandemic, you know, as of June 8th, we had about 15,000 um, plus new cases in the United States. And that is giving us a positivity rate of 2.67% for the U.S. seven-day average and in the state of Florida, 4.36% um, seven-day average. So the numbers are great. We have over 140 million people vaccinated, fully vaccinated, but yet we still have so much to learn and understand about COVID. And I think one of the most fascinating things about this condition has really been around the, the rashes, the skin manifestations, the, the um the skin breakdown that we've seen as part of this disease state. So today I'm going to have Dr. Pamela Scarborough and Dr. Vicki Knowles really present to us and talk to us. And they both are just amazing um, speakers. I'm gonna let them introduce themselves and, and have them take it on and carry on the, the show. Thank you, Dr. Sanders Zapata. Really appreciate that. And thank the Florida Medical Directors Association for inviting us to do this because it is truly something that's dear to all of our hearts, all three of us actually. So my name is Pamela Scarborough. I'm my doctorate's in physical therapy. I'm a wound specialist. I've been a diabetes educator, was a diabetes educator for over 20 years. I've been doing wound management, education, uh, clinical leadership for the last probably 20 years. I work for American Medical Technologies, which is part of the biller of dressings. And I'm honored and um, just think it's a fabulous gift that let, they let me educate. This is what I do and take care of some of the clinical issues around wound management that we run into in the field. So I'm the vice president of clinical affairs for this company. And then Dr. Vicki Knowles, what's fabulous about her, she's a gerontology PhD uh, RN, who is also a nurse practitioner. She's board certified as a wound specialist. And she's also very involved with hospice. She works for Capital Caring Health, which is a hospice agency. So she's, she's hospice 
uh, related, she's uh, very knowledgeable and right, related to hospice and what goes on with our patients. And one of the problems with hospice is we do get so many wounds. So she's also board certified as a wound specialist. So she brings a great deal of knowledge and agreed to do this program with us today. She is on the COVID skin campaign also. And so is Dr. Uh, uh, Sandra Cepeda. And we'll talk to you about that at the end of the program. So very briefly, I have to read this. Uh, this information is provided for informational purposes only. Patient management decisions should be based on a number of factors, including, but not limited to, professional society guidelines and published clinical literature relevant to a patient's condition. Providers are encouraged to rely on their training and expertise, as well as any and all available information prior to making management or treatment decisions for any individual patient or resident. These are our objectives. We're going to talk about uh, awareness, just having an awareness of these skin manifestations. We're going to talk about some of the differences between the different skin manifestations. Vicki's going to talk to you about documentation considerations as a provider when you're documenting about some of these issues. And we're going to go into long haulers, we're going to briefly speak about long haulers and COVID long hauler skin issues. And then I'm going to introduce you to the COVID skin campaign. So very briefly, we're going to just one slide on the disease. You know this, we've been living it for over a year, but for completion of the program, just very briefly, we know that coronavirus is a version of common viruses that cause infections, usually in the nose, sinuses, and upper throat, and most coronaviruses are not fatal. COVID-19, however, is a disease caused by a novel coronavirus. This is a new virus. We've never seen this before. It's caused by the SARS coronavirus 2. And this particular virus is known to primarily cause or trigger respiratory tract infections. And it can uh, affect the upper respiratory tract with this, our sinuses, our nose and our throat, or the lower respiratory tract with the windpipe and the lungs. And it spreads the way other coronaviruses do from the understanding that we have right now, mainly through person-to-person -person contact. And it can range from no symptoms to mild to moderate symptoms. And of course, there could be deadly outcomes as we've seen, particularly in our care setting. So we've all heard about the cytokine storm. Uh, cytokines are very familiar in the wound care industry because it's part of the inflammatory process that we have to have for wound healing. However, with COVID-19, this immune activity becomes overactive, causing a situation where the immune cells simply cannot stop themselves. And these overreactive cytokines spread beyond the infected body part and start attacking healthy tissues. That's part of the problem. And one of the complications of the cytokine storm appears to be these blood clots that develop throughout the body, this coagulation issue that we're seeing with the overreaction and this creating these blood clots which can decrease blood flow to the organs and can actually cause organ damage, which we've seen in many organs and all the organs actually and organ systems. And we wanna remember that the skin is an organ too. It's, all, all, it's, it's the largest organ of the body. The skin is the largest organ of the body and the skin fails the way other organs fail. So in this cytokine storm, it looks as if it's responsible for some of the skin changes we're seeing. And then that's related to the coagulopathy issue. And then there's some issues related to the rash, which we think has to do with the inflammation process also. And one of the problems with this is these, some of these skin issues that we're seeing mimic other etiologies, such as pressure injuries or deep tissue pressure injury, kidney terminal ulcers, arterial insufficiency, those COVID toes. We're literally having amputations 
of of digits and of limbs related to this disease. I didn't realize that until I started digging deeper and deeper and deeper related to some of the coagulopathy issues and amputations is a problem also. So listed here are the main symptoms of COVID-19, which all of us recognize as you've been watching your patients, your residents, uh, health-related news, your friends, your family, and maybe even yourself. So these symptoms, it can be lower high-grade fever, which we know are no fever. They can be asymptomatic. A person can be asymptomatic, as we know, and still be infectious. And then there are the silent symptoms of COVID skin manifestations. They are skin manifestations. They're mucosal manifestations. And these need to be assessed and differentiated from other dermatologic etiologies when found on the skin. Can it be something besides COVID? It usually was something besides COVID. It was usually a, a reaction to a medication or an environmental reaction, or maybe this person has eczema and they're finding now people who have pre-existing skin issues such as eczema, that they literally have a higher risk of having COVID-19. This is some new studies that I just came up, up on this week. It's, it's boggling my mind. So we're not dermatologists. I'm not a dermatologist. Most of you are not dermatologists. This is not a dermatology lecture. It's an awareness. It's about awareness of these skin manifestations and what they might mean for our patients and residents in our care setting. In an article from the Cleveland Clinic, the physician stated that it is unusual for a primarily respiratory virus, such as SARS coronavirus 2, to have such wide ranging effects on the body, including the skin and mucosa. And that one of the striking features, one of the most striking features of this disease is this wide spectrum of clinical manifestations and outcomes, as we said, from asymptomatic to varying degrees of organ dysfunction to death and autopsies of all of these organs and organ systems have shown and demonstrated that there is damage from the SARS coronavirus 2 in every single one of these organs, including the skin. So during the pandemic, it has become clear that the SARS coronavirus 2 mainly targets the lung, but as mentioned, affects the other organs, including the skin. And it's important to note that these skin and mucous membrane manifestations may have diagnostic value for COVID-19 under certain circumstances. And on the right is an example of shingle-looking vesicles that have manifested in a patient with COVID-19. I had shingles in April. My immune system was diminished from for some other health issues. I got shingles, but I'm on the phone with a couple of my colleagues and saying, is this shingles or is this COVID-19? Oh, when you have a little bit of knowledge, oh my. So I have a little bit of knowledge about COVID skin manifestations. When I get shingles, which I've never had before, I'm wondering, is it COVID or is it shingles? And sure enough, it was shingle. It was along one dermatome. The vesicles didn't cross the midline. And as time went on, I didn't have any other manifestations. But we now know that sometimes the skin manifestation is the first and sometimes the only manifestation of COVID-19, which is one of the things that you want to take back to your buildings to let them know. And I'll talk to you about the building education and just to, uh, at the end of this program. So in this very large study out of the United Kingdom, and you can go to this website here where it says COVID skin signs and see hundreds of photographs of skin manifestations. Out of this study, it talked about how almost 9% of the people out of the 300, almost 37,000 people, almost 9% had COVID skin or mucosal manifestations. Of that 9%, so it's about 30,000 people. 
of that 30,000 people, about up to 17% had the skin symptom as the first symptom, up to 17%. Up to 47% had the skin symptom during the disease process. And uh, up to 39% had the skin symptom after the disease was finished. And I'm gonna talk to you about long haulers at the end of this program and long hauler skin symptoms at the end of this program. But look at this next bullet, up to 21% of the people only had the skin manifestation. What would that have meant to us in long-term care had we know this, known this at the beginning of this pandemic in our buildings? Would it have made a difference? And I don't know the answer to that, but I think it would have. I think we would have cohorted earlier, we started treated earlier, and I think it would have made a difference. How much of a difference? I have no idea. So the SARS coronavirus 2 is creating skin issues. We're just, we're, we're beginning to understand it a little bit more. There's still a lot of research that needs to be done, but we are understanding a little bit related to some of the autopsies and scanning electron microscope technology that actually shows the keratinocyte being attacked by this virus. So the number, we still don't know the number. We're trying to get our arms around that. And I think it's going to be very difficult but research is showing that these manifestations are starting to get significant attention. I'm finding more and more articles on this than I did early when we first identified this in April of 2020 is when this first came, came across my desk. And I've been thinking about this for well over a year. So many of these changes, as I said, mimic some of our other skin issues that are important for us to differentiate for in any care setting, but specifically, in the long-term care setting because of our regulatory issues that we have and the survey process and the five-star process and the, the, the and it goes on and on and on. And so we don't wanna set our buildings up for an F tag because we don't understand skin manifestations. This particular article, and if you want this article, please let Jackson know, type it into your chat, let him know, and I'll send you the article along with the handout. But in this particular article, it divided these skin manifestations into six different groupings and six, six different clinical phenotypes. And this is what this is the six different phenotypes. So this article, which includes these photos, can be provided for you if you have an interest. And this is very meaningful. We're actually getting permission from the authors and from the publisher to post these in our long-term care facilities as an education opportunity. We had to pay for it, but they gave us a nice discount. The, this group uh, that had this article, they gave us a nice discount because it was, it was for education. So this is going to go into the buildings that my company services. This is a fascinating report and could be meaningful for you as a provider. And it talks about, it's a Spanish report that had 375 patients in it. And the, what the big deal about this particular study is when you look at these lividoid eruptions on your left and the necrotic eruptions on the right, what the research has shown and what the studies are, are reporting is that these two manifestations are happening particularly in people with more severe disease. And so this could be meaningful again, for your cohorting process, for your assessment process for the disease, and for your treatment processes. So this, I thought that was important for us to know and for you to understand as a provider. So these are chill plane. This is what we first, this is what I first heard, COVID toes. Oh my goodness, COVID toes. What does that mean? And we've come a long way, baby, since then. 
So what this is talking about is acral lesions, these chilblain-like symptoms that people get with this red-purple discoloration in lighter-skinned individuals. And then in darker-skinned individuals, it shows up, but you have to be very discerning and have good lighting. We are seeing in this dark skin on the top left, these are COVID toes. But you have to recognize the, the changes in the skin tones in darker skin. And the last building I was in in long-term care, we did not have great lighting. This is going to be difficult to see without really good lighting. So these, can, these uh, manifestations can be painful and itchy. Sometimes they have blisters. It looks as if these are appearing late in the disease. Everything I'm reading is now saying late in the disease. In general, it's seen more often in children, but we do have reports in low and older adults. I just got one from one of our buildings that we serviced last week of COVID toes in uh, the foot, the whole foot. And as I said, we are having amputations related to this also and a lot of skin damage. So these coagulopathy and the issues, they've been known, as I said, to lead to amputations due to the hypoxia uh, and that leads to gangrene. Here are some mucosal manifest manifestations. And when we look at the eye, there was a facility up in New York that was talking about, they had all this pink eye in their facility early on with the disease, pink eye, pink eye, pink eye. It wasn't pink eye, it was COVID-19. When you look at the eye and you think about the conjunctiva, that is that thin, shiny membrane over the front of the eye, that is actually a continuation of the mucosal system. So what you're seeing here is COVID eye on the left and COVID mouth on the right. And boy, does that get difficult to, to, to differentiate from. Is it because this person was on antibiotics and their gut flora is all messed up? And is that why they're having a thrush looking thing in, on their tongue? Or is it from COVID-19? Is it the medication? Is it COVID-19? Is it something else? This gets very difficult from a differential diagnosis process. One of the things that we're having trouble with in long-term care right now in our buildings is what you're seeing on this slide. We are, our clinicians are not able to tell the difference between a deep tissue injury, a Kennedy terminal ulcer and a COVID skin damage. And there's some other reasons for this kind of issue also, which maybe Vicki and I'll do a program on that sometime. All the things that look like pressure but aren't pressure and are getting reported as pressure to for our buildings and it's a problem. So on the left, you have a deep tissue injury, which is pressure injury. So this is considered to be avoidable. There are some pressure injuries that are unavoidable, but you have to have certain things in, in line in your care plan and in your assessment process. And Vicki's gonna speak to that in just a few minutes. In the middle is the Kennedy terminal ulcer. And this is associated with multi-organ failure as a person goes through their dying process. And on the right is actually COVID skin from the coagulopathy issues. So which, when you look at this, it's the surveyors are having a very hard time with this. They think, oh, well, everyone wants to call it COVID-19 when really it's a pressure injury and we want you to call it a pressure injury, but it's not a pressure injury. So we have to have our providers to help us. So this is a clinical tip for you. One of the things that's happening with our patients who survive COVID or who are in COVID, particularly if their pulse oxes are low, they are acquiring pressure injuries, but this is the pressure injuries that they're acquiring is because they also have low systemic oxygen. We know that low systemic oxygenation, which the tool we have to measure it with in long-term care is the pulse oximeter. You know, there are over 100 risk factors for pressure injuries, not just six that are in the Braden. And low pulse ox or low systemic oxygenation is one of the risk factors 
Well, what's happening after COVID is these people are continuing with their long hauler issues to have low systemic oxygenation. Some people are coming back up to where they were pre-COVID. Many people are not coming up to where they were pre-COVID. So it's very important that we look at the systemic oxygenation and we can use our pulse ox for that. First of all, low systemic oxygenation, the person's at higher risk for pressure injury. Number two, if they have low systemic oxygenation, they are going to be at risk for wound healing issues. No oxygen, no wound healing. So it's not just peripheral arterial disease that we need to be concerned with. We also need to look at systemic oxygen issues. So Vicki, would you please take it from here? Gladly, thank you so much, Pamela. So in April of 2020, um, there was a letter sent out by the National Pressure Injury Advisory Panel. And I really wanna read the statement because I think it, it, it's something we need to be aware of that evidence-based standards of pressure injury prevention have not changed. So in general, pressure injuries are considered avoidable. However, we reasonably anticipate that unavoidable pressure injury rates may increase during the COVID-19 crisis. And similarly to what Pamela has already shared with you, it's all about, and I'm gonna talk bit about documentation. At the end of the day, we have to put the pieces together for the surveyors, for our, our staff, for our colleagues, for the families that audit and ask for, you know, medical release of information. We have to put the pieces together for people to understand exactly what's going on. So I have a case that I actually dealt with last summer that I would like to share. And so I was asked, um, there was a patient, an 80-year-old female that lived in a nursing home. Uh, initially, her at baseline, she was ambulatory with a walker and had moderate um, cognitive impairment. She had some other comorbid conditions, hypertension, diabetes, arthritis. Uh, she was referred to our hospice because um, the family declined hospitalization for COVID. I was asked to do a telehealth visit, a joint visit with our hospice medical director to assess this unstageable pressure injury that she has, where previously before she had COVID, it was documented as a stage two, which is a partial thickness. It's, it's not really honestly as complicated, right? As an unstageable pressure injury. And I was asked if I could specifically diagnose it as a Kennedy's terminal ulcer. So the hidden question to me here is, is this avoidable or unavoidable, right? Because if we start documenting that it was avoidable, then that potentially sets you up for quality issues, F tags, what have you. If we can document that it's unavoidable and that it's part of the disease process, you know, that's, that's going to help our buildings, help ourselves, help our patients understand what's going on. So does COVID-19 cause unavoidable pressure injuries? So you know, the avoidable unavoidable comes from our uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. I'm not going to belabor that because I would assume this audience understands the F tags, the 686, all that information. Um, and so CMS recognizes in long-term care that not all pressure ulcers or injuries are avoidable. This was a recent, well, not too recent, but within the last few years, a recent change. The caveat, if you read the CMS state manual operations for the surveyors, you have to have documentation that shows that standards were being followed and the um, wound declined anyway. So an example would be in my world where residents on hospice are in the dying process and that's where the Kennedy's terminal ulcer comes into play. Next slide, please. So this is a direct screenshot from the state operations manual for surveyors. And I'm not gonna read it all. I just want people to be aware that it is there. It does talk about modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. It actually defines what they think a Kennedy's terminal ulcer should look like and what the documentation would look like. So the key is again, documenting the standard interventions that have been implemented, even if they were unsuccessful. Because again, you're establishing that case 
that you tried all this stuff that's following the standard of wound care and it didn't work anyway. So that's even your pressure redistributions or your low air loss mattresses, your pressure relieving devices in the chairs, you know, what how have you tried that follows the wound care standards and why didn't it work? How did it fail that, you know, put all those pieces together. Next slide, please. So at the end of the day, the, the documentation, the requirements say that we have four constructs for that FTAG F686. So the assessment piece, the interventions, the standards of care, how you monitor the interventions, and then revised interventions. And at the end of the day, this is a group effort. As much as you know, providers, we can do fantastic documentation, pull the pieces together. You have your nutritionist, your physical therapist, your nurses, your C even the CNAs. Everyone needs to be on the same page and documenting that standard of care that's being followed. And then you're as the provider helping pull the pieces together why it's not working. Or even though this is happening, you know, it's, we're doing all this, it's not working. So back to my case to kind of give you an example. So my documentation, my best assessment through telehealth, for those of you that have done telehealth, as you can imagine, it's not that great. I couldn't smell the wound, couldn't measure it. The nurse was at the bedside, um, thankfully, and you know, her full PPE. She was doing the assessment, and the physician and I, hospice medical director and I, were guiding her with how to do some of the assessment pieces and having her report it to me through the telehealth visit. Um, and then, you know, my documentation, I did ask the facility staff, like, what were the standards that you have followed? Can you know share some of that with me? So I, I, I included that in my note. And then my final comments were, given recent accelerated decline, I do suspect a Kennedy's terminal ulcer with secondary effects from COVID due to hypoxia, poor nutritional intake and debility, right? So it was over a bony prominence. So I was not convinced and actually we didn't know back then, it was a year ago, right? But I knew enough that COVID had the coagulopathy that Pamela already referenced and the hypoxia issues. And I, as a wound specialist know that those two factors directly impact the ability for a wound to heal. And then on top of that, because she was so sick from COVID, she now had poor nutritional intake. She went from walking with a walker to completely bedbound. I mean, these are all risk factors for pressure injury development, especially at end of life, because they're going to have a lower tolerance. And so the catch I want you guys to pay attention to is the documentation delayed wound healing expected due to all of these effects. And it would not be a surprise if the wound does not heal or it declines further given the patient's declining status. This may seem like it would be a really long note, but it wasn't. And again, I really believe in spelling it out. Your surveyors are not gonna put the pieces together. The lawyers aren't gonna put the pieces together. You know, if you spell it out for everybody to understand how you're connecting all of these dots and how it's impacting wound healing, I think that's just very thorough wound documentation. Next slide, please. So the NPIP position statement review, the National Pressure Injury did release a paper on unavoidable pressure injuries during the COVID crisis. The main thing to note is that it stated that areas of skin discoloration or tissue injury on non-loaded anatomic locations. So not history, not in places where your bony prominence is or where you have some sheer stress or where a medical device might be because they're also medical device related pressure injuries. Um, these are most likely not pressure injuries. So we gotta pay attention to where these items are. And again, document them appropriately. Next slide, please. So along those lines with coding. So for my patient, right? So I would document that there's a pressure ulcer on the sacral region of unstageable. I'd pull those pieces together about the delayed wound healing. I wouldn't be surprised if it declines. Why I think this. Um, if, the, if the patient had some sort of coagulopathy, maybe the COVID toe, she didn't, but I'm just putting it out there in case you in, in, 
encompass one of these patients, then I, I would actually pull in the coagulopathy component into my documentation and then my plan here. I will take a quick minute to, to make a case for my palliative wound care uh, passion in that we still have lots of goals of care that we can focus on with palliative wound care. It just may not be our primary goal of wound healing, but there's so many other things. I, that's a time for another lecture, but I will make the pitch that you can still have measurable outcomes when you do palliative wound care. So for those of you guys in um, the value-based medicine, I did put on parentheses, if you use a risk adjustment model, which ones risk adjust. So unfortunately, believe it or not, COVID-19 does not risk adjust at this point. And then again, the other specified coagulation defects, you wanna say what the other is. So again, that's pulling those pieces together. So coagulopathy due to COVID. You don't wanna just say, oh, you know, code it and call it a day. You wanna say what it is. And again, that ties back to trying to get the data, try and find the patterns, as well as it's being very specific on what's going on with your patient. So my last slide is, this is a reiteration of the previous, just some more generalizations to it, and I just want to highlight the L99. So again, if you have the rashes that are happening from COVID, if you think your patient's having the rashes from COVID, then you would code the L99, which is diagnosis of other disorders of skin and subcutaneous tissue and disease classified elsewhere. So your documentation needs to say, right, rashes due to COVID, you need to put those pieces together. And, and that starts to help us understand really what's happening in this post-COVID well somewhat post-COVID world with the vaccinations and everything. Vicki, thank you for that. And I'd like to add something on this slide. As you look at the bottom, uh, the COVID skin campaign, one of the things we're trying to do, which I'm gonna mention at the end of the program, is to get specific dermatologic codes. We're trying to get sp specific ones because most of our providers, this D68.8 and L99, most of you don't know about it. It is way down in the ICD-10 uh, information. So I found someone to pull this out for us, an expert on the ICD-10 coding process to where, where are the codes that we can use for what we're finding? We have not, we have gotten barely any out of long-term care. Most of these codes have come out of acute care, a few out of outpatient. Almost none of these codes the D68.8 and L99 have come out of long-term care. And I do not believe in my heart or my critical thinking skills that we are not having COVID skin manifestations in long-term care. I'm thinking that it's because of some of the uh, other issues that, that we have. It could be because we don't know about these codes. Think about it. And I'm hoping that we can open this up. And if you have questions, we can have some dialogue at the end of this. We have a few more slides to get through. And then it'd really be meaningful to dialogue with you about what you're seeing. Have you used these codes? Is this talk important to you? Is this information that you wanna share with others? And let's dialogue with together, please, when we get to the end of this. Now, look at the last bullet. One of the reasons that we want specific codes, dermatology codes, is to get clarity related to the skin and mucosal manifestation uh, uh, diagnoses. To also help us with our documentation to uh, for appropriate coding. So we have codes that pop out at the providers and for reporting and for reimbursement. So these are some of the reasons that we need this information. And please, 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 if you see these, please, these in your facilities, uh, educate others in, uh, in the building and also start using these codes. Now I'm gonna switch to long haulers, which is something, something else about this disease that um, uh, can be very debilitating for people. 
So patients infected with SARS coronavirus 2, many of them have experienced prolonged symptoms of COVID disease after the active disease is over. And this has been termed long haulers or long COVID. And we have studies that report that up to 66 to 87% of patients continue to have one or more COVID-19 symptoms 60 days after a positive PCR test. And that these dermatologic long haulers, that there's a term now for our dermatologic long haulers. And this is a patient who's had dermatological signs of COVID-19 that has persisted for longer than 60 days. So just for your information, because it was interesting to me, so you get the information too, is the median duration of cutaneous signs is 13 days for all patients. And this comes from a study from the American Dermatological Association. And they put some, together some good stuff. They just finished this study and they put some really good stuff together for us. So it's 13 days for all patients that have symptoms and then seven uh, days for those that have laboratory confirmed symptoms. So did the symptoms start first, and then several days later, this per, uh, this this person gets their diagnosis. Do you, that was one of the, the weaknesses they felt in the studies. We don't really know when this person started having COVID-19. The uh, morbilliform manifestations lasted a medium of seven days. Uh, the uh, urticarial, uh, a medium of four days, up to 28 days. The papular squamous lasted an average of 20 days with one lasting up to 70 days. So that puts us in the long hauler skin manifestation category. The perneo, the COVID toes lasting uh, uh, on average 12 to 15 days, usually at the end of the disease. And that there were some that lasted up to 70 days, and there was one uh, that lasted 60 days, and there was one gentleman that had uh, the perineal symptoms that lasted 133 days. So the point is, there are long COVID dermatological symptoms in people who have recovered from COVID-19. Exactly what this means for care of these patients and residents, we still need to get that information but it's important to know. And then one long hauler developed both perneo and levito reticularis that lasted over 150 days, so five or six months. So this, since the beginning of COVID-19, this persistent morbidity beyond the acute phase of the disease, it's been noted in all systems of the body, including the skin. One analysis of the COVID skin manifestation registry demonstrated that these uh, urticarial and milliform eruptions seem to manifest early in the disease and be of short duration. And that of the papular squamous eruptions, particularly the perneo, those aqual COVID toes lesions manifest later and are of longer lasting. So the analysis from the American Academy of Dermatology data revealed a previously unreported subset of patients who experienced long hauler symptoms in dermatology dominant COVID-19. So what does this mean? Uh, it means that these findings raise questions about persistent inflammation. And I've been reading that, that there is, there, it's the disease isn't active, but the byproduct of the disease, the inflammatory response of the disease, continues and we need more studies to understand the long hauler dermatologic manifestation patterns and the implications related to this disease. So in summary of what we've discussed, and I hope you'll hang with us for a little bit longer and discuss with us, among us, 
some of the things that you've seen, you've heard, or what may be important to you from this presentation. COVID-19 has varied clinical manifestations and targets multiple organs as you've seen here, including the skin and mucosa. And these manifestations present in many forms. They happen before, during, or after the active disease. Sometimes they can appear as the first symptom, sometimes they're the only symptom. Differentiating between a Kennedy terminal ulcer from a deep tissue pressure injury from a COVID-19 skin manifestation, it is important. And it can be confusing as they have such similar presentations. And although COVID toes occurs primarily in younger uh, people, they've been reported in older people. I just got some from one of our nursing homes last week, some COVID toes. So these changes can manifest due to many varied reasons, including COVID-19. Is it a medication reaction? Is it an allergic reaction? Is it shingles? <laughs> instead of COVID, such as it was with me. It was shingles. Thank goodness. I was grateful it was shingles. Oh my, whoever knew they'd be grateful for shingles. You want to uh, uh, have access to dermatology specialists. And what I've learned, and I've always known this, if you've been long-term care, you know we don't have a lot of dermatology specialists with whom we can work. This has really brought home how important it is to bring our dermatology specialists into the long-term care industry. And this may be another a way to help them segue to come help us more. And they may be, you wanna know where your dermatologists are because they may need to help you with your differential diagnosis when you're unable to determine the etiology of some of these skin rashes. So please note that long COVID dermatological signs and symptoms have been documented with and without other long hauler symptoms. So ladies and gentlemen, there is something called the COVID Skin Campaign. And I'm going to proudly say that Dr. Diane Sanders Cepeda is one of our co-chairs for the COVID Skin Campaign, which is clinician-led. And the mission is for awareness and recognition that COVID skin manifestations are happening in the post-acute and long-term care setting. Most of the research we have is from acute care. We need research from our care setting. It is a different type of care setting. We house people differently. We have a different population than the other care settings in general. There are overlaps, of course, for the types of patients. And so by achieving a better understanding of the incidents and types of these symptoms, it can help advance the goal of care for these people. And the scope of education is, needs to be taken into consideration for differential diagnosis, treatment, documentation, and coding. So we, are, we have a process for advancing care by doing data collection. We have a website for data collection that is for the post-acute long-term care setting. It, we have our statistician set up to give us some analysis. We have our writing and uh, think tank team to help present and publish the results. And the purpose is to adopt changes in care if we find things that uh, in the research that points to some changes for care. And at the bottom of this, you see at the bottom of this, it says to educate. My company's in about 6,000 um, um, buildings in this country, uh, 4,000 very actively. I've educated 200 of our clinical specialists. All of them are licensed specialists and they all have to be wound specialists also. They are not dermatology specialists. But I've educated over 200 and we are beginning to get data out of the long-term care facility as we are going to the building level building by building by building to educate on this. So you may run into this if you happen to go into any buildings that my company services, you may already run into this. And I'm hoping that you'll bring it from another level, from the provider level. So this is the registry. I'm gonna show you this real quickly, where you can go. It's uh, covidskincampaign.org. 
This talks a little bit about what it is. The, uh, and the data submission takes about uh, 10 to 12 minutes. I'm sorry, I'm looking over here at another screen to show this to you. It takes about 27, uh, 10 to 12 minutes. It's uh, HIPAA compliant. The resident's privacy is insured and the option for photographs, we need photographs. We need photographs in older adults is what we need desperately. And so this is the COVID Skin Campaign data depository that you see over here on the right. And we are asking questions such as, when did this happen before, during, or after? Did this person have some pre-existing dermatologic issues such as eczema, psoriasis, something like this? Because there does seem to be a propensity to COVID-19 in some of these people that had pre-existing illnesses. And so we're, and we, we got this information from the American Dermatological Association. So this is the COVID skin campaign and we hope that you will join us and help us with this. And I wanna say thank you very much. I have a very uh, robust reference section for you if you would like to uh, have this information. And please, let's open it up for questions, comments. You can type, you can raise your hand, Jackson, if you'll help us with that. Tell us what you think about what we've said today. And now, a word from our sponsor, U.S. Post-Acute Care. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At US Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. Thank you both for doing such a great job. And if you can go back to the long haulers for me, I, I, I'm just curious, how do we, if, if when we're thinking about this, if we're seeing a lesion maybe three months out, is that part of the long haulers or are we documenting something new? Or could it be because of the systemic uh, impact that COVID had that has now caused this person to be much more susceptible to getting a wound? How should that be documented and interpreted by our clinicians? I know that's a long question. That's a hard question. It's not just long. It's hard. We're having troubles with it in a, in a very narrow window of time. How are you going to do this uh, long haul from a long haul perspective? Vicki, do you have some thoughts as a provider? I would that say I think we're just need to pump that to you. I know. I know. It's okay. I actually I've thought about this because at the end of the day, we're, we're, we're still what does long hauler mean? Does that mean 10 years from now, five years? I mean, we're still in the process of learning a lot of this. I will say that since as these articles and stuff, and as you know, Pamela has been educating me, um, I now ask the question even of my hospital,
hospice patients, my palliative care patients. Um, I do, you know, did they have COVID? That's actually one of my questions now as part of when I ask about their nutritional status, their debility. And then if they say, yes, they did have COVID, I said, oh, well, do they, did they have any rashes or skin manifestations from the COVID? Did they have any issue, you know, because to your point, then I'm going to tie that into thinking, is there an inflammatory response, which does tie to wound healing? I don't know that I have a, a solid answer for your question, but I, I can throw that out there, that it is part of my questioning when I'm doing an assessment with, um, with delayed wound healing. But I, I see a lot of delayed wound healing in hospice. Do we have any questions, Jackson? Would anybody like to speak about your experience, your thoughts, and what this may mean to you for your practice? We do have a question in the chat, um, and it is about post-vaccination skin issues. Um, ha have we seen any skin um, manifestations to the point where we need to get a, dermat a dermatology consult or anything post-vaccination? And if I'm not interpreting your question correctly, please go ahead and um, let me know or take yourself off mute. The um, post-vaccination, actually that's part of the COVID skin campaign. We are looking at um, dermatologic manifestations post-vaccine because, and the reason is because we're having them. Where people who have never had COVID, they're getting the vaccine and they're having skin manifestations from this. They're having, you know, many of the symptoms, although at a lesser level of intensity when they've had the vaccines and skin manifestations is one of those. Uh, some of the treatment things that I've heard that they're doing are strong things like topical steroids if, it if it's a rash type situation. So what you would do for eczema, psoriasis, and I am not a dermatologist, so do not take my word on this. I am a physical therapist that does wound management, but I am hearing that the normal topical interventions that would you use for some of the usual types of rashes people get may be something they're going to, to, to use. Are we going to ever have some type of anti-inflammatory, uh, other than steroids, I don't know that what we're going to use from, from an anti-inflammatory perspective, either topical or systemic steroids. And if anyone has anything to add to this, please do. Vicki, do you have anything to add? Well, I'll add something. I think that that is fair. Um, what we're seeing when we're looking at the post-vaccination for those rashes, um, we are um, sticking to the guidelines and prescribing a topical steroid. Um, we do have, as um, the other co-chair, Dr. Andrea Madrell, um, I hope I said her name correctly. Madrell, yes. She's a dermatologist. So we're, these are the questions that we are definitely trying to ask, answer as part of the skin campaign. I will share, um, you know, it, it is quite interesting because this helped um, all of this knowledge that um, Pamela brought to, I think, our organization's attention last fall in one of our early conversations, Pamela, you, I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, your, your um, discussion about the uterocarial eruptions and um, the COVID toes helped me and my um, daughter's physician realize that she had had been had COVID. Um, we were trying to figure out what was going on with her for like two weeks. We didn't hear from her, and you know she's she's um, she well she's not a millennial. She's eighteen um, now, but she um, would text and check in all the time. And her and her doormates all became sick at the same time, and it, it was a huge outbreak in their dorm. 
And we couldn't prove it because no one had gone and got tested because, you know, there are a bunch of 18 year olds and no one wanted to get sent home from the university. Uh, when we finally went up there and, and just um, checked in on her, uh, she was having the headaches and the fatigue, but she also was having um, hives, the eutocaria, which was not, you know, we know all her allergies. She does carry an EpiPen for um, a peanut allergy. And, you know, she's like, I, I did not take anything, but I'm, I'm breaking out at hives. And then months later in December, we saw the toes. And that was the first time I talked to you. And I was like, oh my God, you know, and we, we actually had to withdraw her from the semester because she could not stay awake enough to even take a course. Um, so it was, it was interesting, but to, to look at that now in reflection, to see what the things that we were missing, trying to understand why for a whole month she was breaking out in hives. And then um, when we finally got her, we're like, okay, you know, let's, let's figure out what's going on. And she's like, my toes are weird and I don't know what's wrong with them. And I was like, this followed a conversation that you and I had. So I, I, I think that this is very important. This is one of the reasons why I've sort of um, attached myself to this project because it is one of those things that we can utilize as another um, tool in our toolbox to making these diagnoses especially as we're still seeing outbreaks in our facilities. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. That's an interesting story. So she has her own long haulers going, that went, was going on. She did, but she, after she was vaccinated, I will say um, we did see that the, the toes, that discoloration did get better. So that's just completely subjective. There is no science that I can point to, but I, I, I was noticing that and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to start seeing if there's something that's happening following um, vaccination. That, that we could be interesting. Yes, yeah. that'd be interesting. So I have Anything a question else? with the uh, COVID toes. There's no necrotic process with that, is there? That you have yes, sir, there about? can be. There can be. So you start on some type of uh, um, blood thinner then. Yes, and we are seeing amputations from uh, the coagulopathy issues related to COVID toes, co uh, the chilblain-like symptoms to the coagulopathy issues. I've got to get the word out, coagulopathy issues. We are seeing amputations. Thanks. Thank you for your question. All right, Dr. Sanders Chapetta, I think Vicki and I are done for you today. And thank you again for having us. We're so grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. And um, I look forward to hearing more about this topic, helping to teach and educate. And if you guys have any questions that come in, please do not hesitate to email us and we'll get them to Pamela and Vicki. Thank you both. Have a great day, everyone. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. References for this podcast and links to previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club.